0: Welcome to the All of Life podcast from Redemption Church Tempe, where we have conversations on faith, culture, theology, and beyond to help us live all of life, all for Jesus. Let's jump into today's episode.
1: Well, welcome to the All of Life podcast. My name is Melissa Stone, and I work here at Redemption Tempe, with families and individuals in the disability community um, here in Arizona. And I'm also a wife and mom of four kids, um, one of my kiddos being a non-speaking son on the autism spectrum. So today we have the wonderful pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lamar Hardwick, um, whose newest book is called Disability and the Church, A Vision for Diversity and, and Inclusion. Um, You can also find him on his social media handle, Autism Pastor. Um, Dr. Hardwick, thank you so much for joining us here today.
0: Thanks for having me. Yeah.
1: Well, um, I know personally for me, it's been um, really encouraging just uh, observing and engaging with you from afar. I know this is the first time I've had the opportunity to meet you, Mm -hmm. Um, but... I'm just really thankful for the work that you're doing um, in the church. And I was wondering if you might be able to tell us a little bit about your story.
0: Sure. Um, Well, normally the first question I get, so I try to answer this first is um, the social media handle, autism pastor. Yeah. um, Where did that come from? Um, So the, the short end of the story is I was, Myself diagnosed autism spectrum as an adult. Um, that was almost seven years ago, it was 2014 mm-hmm. um, in December, and um, I was 36 at the time. Um, but I shared with people that I probably around seven or eight started to notice there are differences between me and my peers. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the best description I can give is it felt like the world was in on an inside joke that I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, fast forward through sort of stumbling through life, um, you know, having the labels as, you know, he's just a shy kid or he's a lazy kid or um, sort of all the negative labels that you could, mm-hmm. um, you know, slap on a kid who really struggled and has significant challenges socially um you know i pretty much got called all those things um but somehow sort of managed to do well enough um particularly academically i did okay um but just really struggled with relationships um with teachers with peers um so fast forward to um 2012 the summer i was actually working uh, at a church as a youth pastor mm-hmm. um And I like to joke that one of the reasons why no one really picked up on anything is because all teenagers are socially awkward. Yeah. And so so I fit in with them. Um,
2: uh,
0: But uh, my predecessor at at a previous church resigned and um, I was considered to be the next lead pastor of that church. And so that transition took about 17, 18 months and it was really hard for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I spent more time in the adult service because the leaders of the church, um, they liked the way that I preached, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: um, but just really struggled. so I had adults say things like he walked past me, didn't speak. He's not approachable. He looks, uh, angry. Um, all the things I heard as a kid, but I was hearing it in adult language, Mm -hmm. um, again, for the first time. So, uh, I actually, was doing my doctorate at the time. And I had to ask seven people to do an assessment of me. Um, And a gentleman that I worked with at the time, who I really respected wrote uh, on his assess- assessment of me for a class project. I quote, Lamar has a hard time picking up on social cues. Lamar gets laser focused on one task at a time, so on and so forth. And it literally read like diagnostic criteria. Mm.
2: Uh,
0: I, at the time, Had no idea what a social cue was. Had never heard that word before. So I Googled it. Mm -hmm. And that's what led me to, for about a year doing my own investigation, uh, I was reading articles and watching videos of other adults that had been diagnosed with Asperger's or, uh, you know, autism. And it just led me to start to find the language to say, this is what people have been saying about me my whole life. It Mm -hmm. explained why I was having relationship problems, explain the communication problems I had with my wife, explain why I've never had a job up until that point for longer than two or three years. Mm. Um, so after about a year of doing my own investigation, I got up the courage to ask my wife to help me find someone who can assess me. Mm. And in December of 2014, I uh, was diagnosed on autism spectrum. Now, the autism pastor comes from... After I disclosed my diagnosis to my church and I started writing and blogging about it in 2015, I had a a woman who inboxed me and said, you know, you have kind of become like the pastor for the autism community because a lot of us don't get to church, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether they themselves had autism or a child. And so I actually changed the name of my pages and my handles so that it made people it made it easier for people to find me. Um, So that's where Autism Pastor came from. It wasn't something I came up with. It was something that was kind of just, um, you know, slowly became a calling um, to minister to that community, but then also to help the church to become more aware of how it should be and can be more inclusive of uh, not just people with Autism, but, you know, persons with disabilities uh, across the board. So, so a little bit of my story. I am married, um, was married before I was diagnosed. Uh, my wife and I will celebrate 21 years in January, and we have three beautiful boys.
1: Congratulations. Well, and I know that you and I um, are familiar with what autism entails, but mm-hmm. for those who um, aren't as familiar with autism, can you share a little bit? more maybe more in depth about um what that means to have autism
0: yeah that is such a big question as you know um yeah. you know there's sort of a saying in the autism community if you've met one person with autism you met one person with autism mm-hmm. um because it truly is a spectrum but generally speaking it's categorized as a social um communication disorder with the other um with other factors such as you can also have um, sensory processing issues or challenges, which is one of my bigger things um, you can have, as you said earlier, um, those who are on the spectrum that are, um, I don't like to say non-verbal, I like to say non-talking um, mm-hmm. because they still can very much communicate um, with you. Um, it also entails, um What some call, even though I'm not fond of the term called mind blindness, which is sort of this um, struggle or inability to pick up on um, social cues and body language, which is something that most people develop around the age of 18 months or two years where they can start to understand um, what facial expressions mean, what voice intonation means, uh, body language and those types of things. And then, um, it's sometimes, uh, more often than not also marked by, um, you know, repetitive behaviors, um, and those types of things. So it's pretty, uh, a pretty broad spectrum and it doesn't impact everyone in the same way, but there are some pretty general things that are true of, of all people who are on autism spectrum.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and I'm curious to know, like, what are some of the ways that like your autism has served you and like that you've seen gifts and like new pers- like what, are, what are some of those ways that you um, autism has really in- enhanced your experience?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Good question. I, I, I would say that um, one of the things that I'm very good at is uh, recognizing patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a the general thinking that there are three types of minds um, when it comes to autism, there are visual thinkers, people who think in pictures, there are um, pattern thinkers. Um, and then there are um, those who are more of words. Um, and um, I guess words. Yeah. So I, uh, I like to say my mind is a combination of, of two of those um, words and patterns. And so I'm not a typical visual thinker. Um, mm-hmm. Like, like there tends to be a lot of people on the spectrum who are, but for me, because I'm a pattern thinker and I see the world through words and language um, it's, it's helped me to be very gifted at understanding patterns. So I actually can, you know, tend to see things yeah. that sometimes people miss because they're minute details that uh, other people may overlook. But also, mm-hmm. it has made me, um, because I am verbal, it's made me very good with words, particularly writing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so, those tend to be two ways that um, I can say that is probably a, a gift uh, that comes along with some of the the challenges.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I um, work with, aside from working at Redemption Tempe, I also work with the non-speaking community um, and teaching them l- communication on letter boards. Mm-hmm. And so when that, you know, I love that you use that phrase like instead of non-verbal um, non-talking or like non-speaking mm-hmm. um, because so many of our non-speakers do have words. Um, they, just those motor skills um, are have so much noise in between that motor skill. Um, so they have a hard time getting those words that are in their head out. So, um, <clears throat> but yeah, I definitely see that. see that a lot of our guys who have um, had to live so much of their life in that non-speaking community um, with listening and they're listening that when that ability to communicate comes out, um, man, just that powerhouse of words that comes is incredible. So um, that's cool. Well, now to, I'd love to transition to your book and um, just the, the motivation and the desire for why you wrote this book, really, um, and why, why it's something that the whole of the church needs to hear and not just those in the disability community.
0: Yeah. Um, so I, I I wrote a book um, 2017 um, that's called I Am Strong uh, and it was basically an autobiography. Um, so I shared a little bit about my journey to diagnosis and some of the challenges I had, but also some of the ways that I've learned how to navigate, um, particularly being in ministry. And so um, this most recent book, which released in February sort of swings the focus. It, it picks up on a little bit of my story, um, but it swings the focus to the church and the ways that the church um, should be more aware of uh, some of the unintentional barriers that sometimes it puts up for persons like myself or others with, with disabilities. And so um, I, I use my own personal story, but also as someone who understands the church from you know, being a pastor, I've been in, in ministry, um, over two decades. I started when I was in my early twenties. So, mm. um, and I've had some significant challenges in trying to fulfill that calling that I felt like got a place in my life. And a lot of it after being diagnosed, I realized what a lot of those challenges were, what a lot mm. of those barriers were. And so, you know, having had to struggle through it for many years. I understand the church well. I understand what it, what it's like to pastor a church. So I wanted to r- write a book that pastors would want to read, um, that had an, enough theology in there that make them interested in this topic, but also something that, um, you know, the everyday person who, you know, may not have gone to seminary could read as well, uh, mm-hmm. make it simple enough for them and short enough for them to be able to read, um, as a way of saying, you know what, this is something that I could pass along to, you know, the pastors and leaders of our church to make them more interested in this, this conversation. Um, so, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, aims to the book, but those are the main two. Um, and hopefully it would, you know, bring sort of a, a grassroots awareness, uh, to the church. Cause I, I, done disability ministry conferences for a couple of years. And what I noticed is that a lot of the people that would come to my table after I gave a talk or a breakout were great people who were really interested in this, this subject, and they wanted to help the church do better. But I've very rarely, if ever met any church leaders, they're Mm -hmm. mostly volunteers. Mm -hmm. So what I found is that those are the people who really don't have the ability to make any wholesale changes in the church, but they're, they're fired up. So I wanted to get something in their hands Mm -hmm. to equip them that they could take to their pastors and their leaders and say, I read this book. Maybe we should think about some of these things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that, um, and just like indicative of the title of the book is, um, a vision for diversity and inclusion. And, um, I think, uh, yeah, just that idea of including disability in the conversation of diversity. Um, what, what does that really mean? Why is that necessary for us to think about disability when we're using terms of diversity? Because that kind of seems like a term nowadays that's really um, almost like a buzzword of diversity um, and inclusion, but like what what does disability have to do with it?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So I um, I actually did a talk a couple of years ago, um, and the name, the title of the talk was, uh, "Diversity, Disability, and the Future of Christianity,"
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and that's actually what sparked uh, the movement behind the book because so many it had gotten such a great response that people told me I should write about it, and it was only a twenty-minute TED talk style uh, at a conference.
2: Mm-hmm
0: um but even back then i guess it was 20 may have been 2016 uh 2017 i started to have these conversations at conferences i was speaking at
2: Hmm.
0: um because the direction that our culture was going in and even the church and it was necessary was to recognize the need for more diversity Hmm. which is a culture's way of saying historically there have been spaces that minority communities have not had an opportunity to weigh in on how, you know, things should be constructed, everything from education to employment to healthcare, We tended to not see uh, the voices of minorities being weighed in on those areas. And so it, it tends to shape how things are done when you have an absence of voices.
2: Hmm.
0: What I was proposing is that the largest minority group in the world are actually persons with disabilities. Mm. Um, And that's World Health Organization a couple of other organizations that uh, came out with that statistic a few years ago. And so if that's true, if we're gonna have a conversation about diversity, we have to zoom out. And Mm -hmm. racial and ethnic diversity is great. Um, I'm all for that, but but we have to zoom out quite a bit because the largest minority group in the world at about 20% are persons with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And what I would share with people is it's the only minority group that you can become part of at any time for any reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's an issue that's much closer to our doorstep than we often think it is.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and the reality is, if we all live long enough, we'll become a part of that group at some point in time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so it was important to me to zoom out and have a conversation of diversity by looking at the largest minority group and then realizing that. You know, persons in the disability community's voices have long been left out of conversations about how society should be structured, and that includes the church. Um, historically, um, persons with disabilities have had uh, very little to any voice in the church, and so much of how we do church now is without the voices of the disability community weighing in and saying. These are things that are barriers for us. And if you want to be more inclusive, you should consider these things.
1: Yeah. And so what do you think are some of those barriers? Like what are you know, what are ways that we can make churches, churches more inclusive and remove
0: some of those barriers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I start with not talk about this in the book, um, or at least for me, the highest degree of Inclusiveness is, and I say this in a book. You can you can tell an organization's commitment to diversity by who it allows to lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, in the end, for me, ideally, I would love to see more persons with disabilities have leadership roles in the church, mm-hmm. because those are the people that are going to help shape uh, the future of the church to shape what what our spaces should look like, and not just uh, physical spaces, but also theologically. Uh, emotionally, socially, um, so, so for me, that's that's probably the the biggest barrier. You don't see that enough. Um, you don't see persons with disabilities and their families being giving real influence and leadership in the church to help shape the church. But then, um, you know, on a practical level, um, some of the other barriers are sometimes things that are very simple. Um, so, for example, someone like myself who. Tends to struggle with something called executive functioning, which is, you know, I tell people that just means the administrative system in my head doesn't do its job very well.
2: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Um, so I need a little bit of help um, with that. Now, thankfully, I have a staff around me who, who do things that I'm not very gifted at. So I can do the two or three things that I'm really gifted at.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But, but for the everyday person coming to your church, things like better signage, things like. um considering noise levels, um, providing, um, some kind of structure, particularly for persons that have neurological differences like, um, autism or ADHD. Um, you know, for most people who are guests at your church, they don't know where to go, what's going on,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: um, what's happening next. Um, so just make simple, um, adjustments to be able to, Make sure that those unintentional and invisible barriers are not there. So better signage, training, training greeters and ushers um, to not point to a direction or to not give uh, verbal directions. But if you have an opportunity to give written directions to how something is done, uh, people who will walk you to spaces, uh, providing Mm. tools like sensory headphones uh, for those who the music may be a little bit too loud, sensory rooms Mm-hmm. Um, where they can enjoy the service in a room where the noise levels are not as loud. Uh, even for me, like, like I'm able to to navigate church because I know everything that's going on. So I know how long the music's going to last. I know how loud it's going to be, um, but even providing some sort of cues and tips for uh, people who that's not something that they typically have information about.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and then i also say uh, another practical example is a, a lot of churches will have a uh, Period of time during the service where, and this is pre COVID, obviously, where they would tell, you know, the parishioners to turn and greet somebody new or hug them or, you know, well, you know, persons like myself who have, you know, Mm -hmm. who are sensory sensitive um, sometimes don't like uninitiated contact, um, even persons with anxiety disorders. Um, So I took a straw poll at the two churches that I've pastored over the last uh, 20 years and just asked, and it wasn't a scientific but just asked um, some questions. And I found um, through their answers that a lot of people who come late to service mm-hmm. were coming late to miss that part.
1: To miss because, the awkward introduction, huh? Yes, yes. Yeah.
0: So we were fussing at people for being late. And a lot of them were saying, I intentionally skip worship because I know somewhere between the second and third song are going to make me turn around and hug and touch people. And, yes. and I'm either extremely introverted or i have a anxiety disorder mm-hmm. or a sensory processing issue where you know i don't like touch mm-hmm. um and so uh we got rid of that part of the service and i understand there are people who need it but we set up areas in the building where like a coffee shop where those types of high touch environments still exist but people are not forced to do that as a part of the service
2: mm-hmm. so,
0: so those are just a few ways practically that we have set up unintentional barriers and then you know we could talk about you know, even through our preaching and singing, how are we preaching about and singing about um, things that appear in the text uh, about disabled people? Are we making them object lessons for able-bodied people to understand how good they have it? Um, mm-hmm. Typically, that's how those texts are preached. Um, and some of those things can be barriers and can be off-putting to people who actually live with those things. Um, and it's not symbolic for them. Um, So just really taking time to think about all the ways in which we've created unintentional barriers. And and the reason I go back to leadership is that if you have persons in your church who are part of the disability community as leaders, they can help inform you of those intentional or unintentional barriers that may be up. But when you don't, you'll continue to reconstruct church the same way because you don't have the voices there telling you that might be a problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, um, I loved that part of the book where you talked about um, engaging in leadership and I had never seen, and I think like this was like worth the book in gold was that part of how to um, guide pastors into engaging um, people with disability and how to um, speak from the pulpit and how do you, um, how do you do that? And, um, guiding pastors to think through that and think along that. I just loved that portion of the book. So, um, so I know, um, like you're. Uh, I love history. I'm a like history buff. I'm not the best at it, but um, I have heard in my fangirling of reading from you that you are a church history fan, um, and so I wondered, um, just in getting a bigger picture of the story of disability throughout the church what how has the church engaged um, with disability in the past
0: yeah I, I think you find in the early church um that the early church was pretty faithful to um, to serving and living alongside and being in community with uh, mm-hmm. persons with disabilities or you know, for them they would have considered it a, a, a sickness of some kind you know you know obviously you've gotten more educated
2: mm-hmm.
0: on the various different types of disabilities so everything doesn't fall under the umbrella of illness um mm-hmm. i think in the early church you find that so like if you look at um if you look at uh in galatians paul talks about um he when he writes the 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 Letter to the church of Galatia, he talks about how, you know, he he really had no plans to stop there. But then he says, no, but because of my physical brokenness,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, I was forced to stop here. But then he says something interesting. And most scholars believe that this is probably one of his earliest letters. Um, there's some debate about it. I tend to believe it's one of his, his earliest letters because he talks a lot about the beginning stages of the church. And so um I say that to say that these are Paul's most unfiltered. experiences with the church right post his conversion yeah so he's just telling you what he really thinks and he says in there that um you know when i stopped there there were some of you who cared so much for me that you would have given me your eyes uh Mm. if you could have done so which is a nod to the fact that paul had visual impairment Mm. um some other cause believe that he might have also had epilepsy Mm. um but he definitely lived with disability. And he talks about that in Second Corinthians, this thorn, right? Mm-hmm. So, but he says that the people were so kind to him, they didn't consider him a burden. Now he does say that something changed and mm-hmm. um, they stopped treating him that way. But earlier on in the church, you saw that there was a, a history of uh, the church doing very well at taking care of uh, the widows, the orphans, and the disabled. Uh, so much so you can even see throughout a lot of modern medicine uh, as far as the ethics behind how uh, modern medicine was developed came from ideals from Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. You look at, you know, things like um, Salvation Army, you look at, um, uh, you know, in early history, the plagues where people were running away from the cities where people were becoming ill and disabled because of, you uh, in sickness. It was the church that was running into those areas that were taken care of. So the church, uh, early on, I would say probably, you know, the first several centuries of the birth of the church, they did very well at this. Mm -hmm. Um, at some point I can't really pinpoint in history where the shift started to take place. Um, you start to see sort of this retreat away from, um, More so living in community, not necessarily doing the service, but it was more, it shifted more into a paternalistic sort of thing Mm. where it was more about pitying the poor and the orphan and the widow and providing them services rather than living in community with uh, and sharing space with and considering them equal. And Mm. so somewhere along the way uh, you start to see this shift, but in early days, the church was very good at it so much. So, um, I can't remember which, um, ruler it was uh, in rome um who said that if they're going to return back to after constantine in 13 or 313 ad passed what essentially would have been a freedom of religious act right mm-hmm. everyone christianity became cool
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> everyone
0: started to become christian after he died and i can't remember the guy's name the one after that who wanted to reinstitute pagan religion uh he says that the only way that we can go back to the old religion is if we take better care of the poor and the sick than the Christians do. Mm. So so he realized that there's no shot in us getting rid of Christianity because they took care of the poor, the orphaned, and the disabled so well Mm. that people were not going to be willing to go back to the old religion because of how influential the Christians were in taking care of the disabled and the poor. Um, So that just tells you that we had a rich history of really doing this well it's somewhere along the line it became more about programs and paternalism than it, it became about living in community mm. uh, with those who are differently able. and so that's part of the switch and even me talking about disability ministry is not necessarily you know there needs to be some intentionality at providing services and programs and spaces But eventually I would love to see, and this is why it's a vision because it's very lofty. I would love to see where the church just takes into account Mm. all of the needs of people um, who they're intending to be a part of their community Mm. and infuse that throughout the whole church. So that it goes back to just being a response to the teachings of Jesus. So we Mm. don't eventually we don't have to call it disability ministry. It's just it's just church like it was in the early first century.
1: Yeah, it's not a silo. It's just baked into our DNA that this is who we are.
2: Exactly.
1: Yeah, I've often wondered, you know, if that shift happened, like in that shift of modernity, when so much of like uh, so much emphasis was placed on intellectual thought and reason, Hmm. that it that that community of people who it was assumed didn't have that got left. And I wonder, you know, like often when things push forward in a society, we forget to ask that question. Well, who's getting left behind? But when progress happens, somebody's always, somebody's always the one to get left behind. And um, so, yeah, I've I've wondered that question too. Where did that shift happen? Of, um, and how can we get back? So, um, well, I know too. Like as we um, look at how uh, like ministering to those with disability, that language is a really important part of that. Um, and so I really, um, I think I've, being a parent and not having that an endemic perspective and being um, in that position, like I, I tell people all the time, like, I I, I want to work myself out of a job. If somebody um, wants to take my spot, like, I feel like this, you know, that's the goal. But um but also, like that um, language is important when we're um, naming naming things. and Adam, you know, that was a something that God gave the task for for Adam in the very beginning was to name. And so, are we bringing intentionality to that? Um, so how, when we are talking about the disability community, um, what are some of those like varying perspectives of language and, how can we walk in love in talking about individuals with disabilities?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's a tough one. I get that question a lot. Um, I, I think for me first, I had to come to recognize that um, the, the language is always changing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and there are gonna be varying degrees of uh, people who tend to wanna lean to one um, you know, one set of language and one set of descriptors than others. Mm -hmm. Um, so a good example of that would be, and I'm sure you know, this is, you know, is it person first language or identity first language? So for the listeners, person first language would be, um, what proponents of that would be considered putting the person first and not their disability. So it would be a person with autism, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: um, in my case, particular. Um, and then identity first language would be um, identifying um, the reality of the person's uh, disability or condition. So as it relates to autism, and this doesn't work with every disability, which mm-hmm. is what makes it so complicated. Yeah. Um, but we'll just talk about autism because that's what, um, you know, my lane is primarily so, person first, with autism, would be person with autism. Mm-hmm. Identity first, language would be autistic person. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for me, I, I realize that a lot of these terms and identifiers and descriptors um, surface and are developed outside of Christian thought. Um, mm-hmm. So, a lot of the ways that I approach it, um, my theology has a lot more to do with it than just picking a term. Mm -hmm. um so so i think the thing that's unique about autism and why i tend to i tend to use both as a way of not to try to offend anyone um but personally i i tend to use autistic um and and autism is unique in this way and this is why i'm saying it doesn't necessarily apply there has to be a lot of nuance because it doesn't necessarily apply to all types of disabilities, but the thought behind identity first is that autism is unique in that it's neurological.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so to, to talk about it from the person, from person first language feels like making autism an accessory mm-hmm. um, to the individual. So that would be the equivalent of saying a person with maleness. Yeah, um,
1: which, who says which, that?
0: <laughs> yeah, which 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 sounds weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but but with autism, because neurological, it is actually like the way that my brain is wired is what makes up who I am. Mm-hmm. And it's really difficult, at least for me, to try to understand myself apart from that because all the things that you know, earlier we talked about gifts. All those things are a part of the residual effect of
2: mm-hmm.
0: how my brain is wired. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are some challenges that come with that. But to, to make it seem like an accessory for some people is problematic because it doesn't take into account that this is part of my personality. So for me, theologically, that goes back to the Imago Dei being created in the image of God what part of me do I try to separate out as if it's not worthy of displaying God's image in me? Mm -hmm. So that's why it becomes very difficult for me. Um, in that instance, now I, I, it doesn't translate well to, to other disabilities, which is why I also struggle with being an advocate for identity first language, because that doesn't always translate to other disabilities, if that makes sense. Um, so in all, I think in the key word that you said, there's is love is to try to make sure that we are honoring um, how people want to be addressed um, in ways that are consistent with our Christian convictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so somewhere I think in there is a balance. So even the term disability versus special needs, there's always debate about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I And I use it interchangeably in my book. I don't know if you noticed because i know that there are uh, churches who use special needs ministry versus disability ministry but i also understand the primary reason why they do that is because parents and families that they're trying to reach know that language better outside the church because they have special education classes they have um you know special olympics things like that Mm -hmm. that that's more of something that is identifiable to them as parents Mm -hmm. um so I, i try to honor but also understand the reasoning behind the type of language that people use and as long as it doesn't veer too far from um, my theology and my christian convictions which ultimately is led by how we should treat people um then i sort of let that shape for me personally the language that i use and the scriptures that i use so that it's not um othering people yeah um but making them understand that Um, as I'm addressing them, I'm also trying to make sure that I acknowledge the image of God in them and that disability, uh, does not distort or deter God's image from being able to be seen in them.
1: Yeah. Amen. Um, well, last question, um, I want to wrap up and, um, and it's save the best for last. I feel Mm -hmm. like, um, is I know you talk about, um, how important it is that when we're and maybe when i when our son was diagnosed um, at a very young age, I think we didn't have the framework and the thinking behind like, what how does God view disability? It's like, you know, when you some people um are born into that world of disability. Some people enter into it through traumatic events. Some people age into it. You know, we all enter disability, um, or we may all enter disability in different ways. But when that happened for our life, we didn't have that framework for um, what God thinks about it, and um, an understanding of a theology of that. So um, can you help us to understand and help help us to um, engage our minds? and And I think too, like prepare so I know that some of those who are listeners, like they may enter into this world and um, like we can help gird their minds and give them an understanding of how God views us. Um, so will, will you help guide us through that?
0: Sure. Um, it, it, it's a very complex um, discussion. So I think the first thing I'll say is, um, I, and I think I mentioned this in the book, that you know, we have to understand that most if not all theology is a reaction to Mm -hmm. or an attempt to explain um an experience of a particular group of community who is typically often um marginalized because of some type of difference Mm -hmm. so so whatever you know whatever a person's position is i think they have to they had to start there and say, okay, if we if we talk about disability theology, understand it's coming from a place of people who have felt marginalized by mm-hmm. the church.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so they are now understanding and talking about and reading the scripture through the lens of how God sees them and their faith mm-hmm. um, in God as a reaction to or response to how typical <laughs> theology mm-hmm. has has position them and, um, even presented them in some ways. And I talked about that earlier about how we preach, how we talk about people with disabilities.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So if you start from there, it's, it's, I think it's a little bit easier to understand. So, so with that framework, I would say for talking about disability theology, I was, I would start with, uh, and I mentioned this before, uh, the imago day, the image of God, mm-hmm. how, how that's central to being able to understand how God sees disability, how God sees persons with disabilities. So you could go from, you know, the conversation that he had with Moses when Moses says, you know, I can't be called by you because I don't speak well. I have a speech impediment. Right. And God says, Mm who, who made you? I know very well, um, the challenges that you have, but it did not distort God's ability to call or use Moses in a significant way. So even there, we see that the image of God um, and the ability to serve God to one's fullest capacity is not distorted or deterred by disability. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, I'm giving you a crash course. Um, Mm -hmm. You go to John 9, where the disciples ask Jesus about the man born blind, who sinned, this man or his parents? Um, What is the reason why he's born blind? Which I tell people is, in my opinion, is a ridiculous question because how much could an infant in the womb, sin to, to have yeah. caused blind, you know, like he hasn't even got here yet. He couldn't have been sinning that much in his mom's womb that
2: mm-hmm. it caused him to be
0: born blind. But, but Jesus is not just in a conversation with the disciples, he's also in a conversation with the history of that belief system mm. because he goes on to say, neither, right? There's a third option here. And Jesus switches a question from, why can't this man see to how can God be seen in him? Um, So, again, it points to this idea that disability doesn't deter or distort from the ability to see God's image in those who are disabled or differently abled. So that helps us to understand that there is a different perspective here, even in Luke 14. And I talk about that in the book where Jesus tells a story about a banquet at a dinner party. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he tells the servant in the story to go out and get the blind, the crippled, the lame, and the poor, and you are to set the table. um, This is an analogy for the kingdom and in some ways the church Mm -hmm. by inviting this marginalized group to the table and giving them the seats of honor. So you start to see this recurring theme uh, that God has a particular um, and I'm, this is going to be, for lack of a better term, a particular affinity for um, mm-hmm. and attention to persons who are disabled or differently able. <clears throat> and then you then you have to have the real questions about um, how God identifies uh, with humanity through his willingness to allow himself to be disabled. And this is where a lot of people sort of um, wrestle with this topic and I, I bring this out in the book to help people think this through mm. one of the ways that we see this is that when Jesus uh, was crucified and I talk about in the book what a real Roman crucifixion would have looked like mm. Um and the fact that Jesus comes back bearing those marks of impairment so the the nails that spikes that would went through his wrist and in a Roman crucifixion it would have actually went through his somewhere around the Achilles tendon Uh, If those things weren't healed, they would have torn and uh, severed several tendons. And that would have been uh, extremely disabling. Uh, Mm -hmm. I've torn an Achilles tendon. Um, It was 2012. I still don't walk the same way. right? Mm -hmm. And I had mine surgically repaired. So my point is you you look at God's view of persons with disabilities. You look at Jesus coming back uh, in his resurrection with those marks of impairment that if we looked at it medically and physically would have been disabling mm-hmm. yet his body can do things that normal human bodies can't do so the question is why did jesus choose mm-hmm. to return with with that with those disabling marks and disabling um as a way of identifying himself remember thomas was the one who said i won't believe unless i am able to put my hands in the holes yeah. so in some sense theologically and you even see this in the book of revelation where it talks about um and i'm paraphrasing that you know the one who stood and was worthy to open the scrolls was the lamb who was mortally wounded yet mm-hmm. still standing
2: mm-hmm. still
0: carrying the same marks disabling marks and impairment but yet it did not disqualify him. There's still a worthiness there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, so if you put and again, this is a crash course. If you put all that together, and you see other places and how God um, views and talks about, even how Jesus uh, talks about disability, you sort of get this sense theologically that one God has a very different view uh, mm-hmm. of persons with disabilities, and then two, Jesus who is God comes back and chooses to identify with humanity by continuing to bear the marks of that impairment, Mm. even all the way into the book of revelation, where we see that it does not extract his worthiness of being able to be able to save us. Mm. So I built a lot of uh, off of the work of the late Dr. Nancy Eastland to sort of build this theology of disability to say that God sees things differently Mm-hmm. which means that there's a social component to how we view disability in our world that God doesn't necessarily um, see things the same way
2: yeah. so much
0: so that he chooses to identify with from birth to death and everybody in between with, with the disabled. And that's what he chooses to use as a remaining identifier of this is how I get you as human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he chooses disability in a way to, to identify with us.
1: Mm-hmm. And for those who don't understand how disability can be a social component, like what does that even mean?
0: Yeah, great question. So there's two basic ideas about disability. Um, one is a medical model, which focuses solely on what is perceived deficits mm-hmm. uh, of the individual Mm -hmm. um so they are unable to see unable to hear unable to walk um so there's just an immense focus on what that individual is not able to do the social model says that in a lot of ways some of the things that individuals with disabilities are not able to do is because society itself is not structured to accommodate their needs and Mm -hmm. so the issue is not that the person uh, is unable to walk, the issue is that society has not created opportunities to help that person become mobile and free mm. to be able to move about. Um, so the way that we build buildings, the way that we structure things, the language that we use, uh, even how we do things in church, uh, suggests that there's another side of disability that is not just on the individual who is disabled or differently able, it's the way that society has structured itself that makes it even more disabling. Persons who cannot walk, for example, could achieve the level of freedom of those who are able um, to use their legs Mm
2: -hmm.
0: had we considered in the way that we've built things and and using technology and tools, opportunities to help them to have the same sort of mobility and freedom uh, Mm -hmm. that able-bodied people have. So there's a huge social component that I think we have to take into consideration if we thought more about persons with disabilities and their Needs and the ways that we can accommodate them, it would actually make their particular quote unquote condition less disabling mm-hmm. because they're not living in a world that's not built for them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So it really introduces more of that social responsibility that it's a we're all in this together. This is a us, exactly. Yeah. Us thing instead
0: yeah. of a. And I talk about that when Jesus, because the question of healing always comes up. And I say, you know, I believe. What is written in the Bible that Jesus did heal people. He didn't heal everyone. Mm -hmm. But if you study the collection of his healings, it's always an intent to restore the person back into community and help the community understand its responsibility to those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is points us in the direction that um, it's bigger than just a medical definition of disability. There's also a social component that we can actually make things better for them
2: mm-hmm.
0: if we become a society that considers them more and helping them, uh, accommodating them, and helping them to uh, achieve uh, sort of some of the things that we have unintentionally. Um, you know, lock them out of because they weren't a part of the consideration of how we constructed our, our culture.
1: Hmm. And ref- just a beautiful way for us to reflect the kingdom that mm-hmm. Jesus has ushered in. So Absolutely. That's, um, I, I'm, I'm just so thankful for you, Dr. Hardwick and thankful for the work that you're doing and um, the time that you've taken to talk with us today. And um yeah, thank you for just leading us to love better, and um, we want to do that well and see see the kingdom come more fully um, into our experiences day to day. So thank you so much for doing that, and thank you to our listeners for um, checking out and being with us today and joining in on this conversation. Please um, go check out Dr. Hardwood's book, uh, Disability in the Church: A Vision for Diversity and Inclusion. And we hope you guys have a great day.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the All of Life podcast. To get more information on Redemption Church Tempe, you can download the Redemption Tempe app or you can send an email to tempe at redemptionaz.com.